Welcome to the Political R&D Podcast. I'm Robbie Krieger-Smith. And I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. We bring political analysis and commentary on events in Alberta and Canadian politics. We discuss policy and look for expert insights into topics relevant to government, policymakers, and issues that face voters. Hi, Deirdre. Hi, Robbie. <laughs> so today is June 5th, and we've been teasing for a long time, but now we're actually going to follow through on recording a podcast talking federal politics. Yay! Yay! <laughs> With the federal election coming up on October 21st, things yep. are going to ramp up, and we're already starting to see the leaders make their pitches to Canadians. And so we're going to regularly be talking about and looking at federal politics in the campaign for the next federal election. Absolutely. And let's start with a little bit of background on what was going on, I guess, last election. So 2015 saw a, a huge increase in voter turnout. And I say a huge increase, even though it was only like 3 million. But on average, the years before, uh, actually since 1988, the average voter turnout was 13,746,000. So, sorry, 568. Um, those numbers are, are fairly equal between 1988 and 2011, with the voter turnout being kind of on a plus minus. It was, it was equal. But in 2015, there were 17,559,353 people that voted. So it was a really big boost. And yeah, whether or not we're going to keep seeing that, I don't know. I think you'll probably see a fairly high turnout percentage in this next election because it has potential to be a change election, which is what the 2015 election was too. It was... Right not so much uh, an endorsement of Trudeau, but a repudiation of Stephen Harper. And yes. typically you'll see a big bump in change elections. And the Alberta provincial election that just happened was another example of that. We had record turnout. We did, yeah. But interestingly, when I went through, like I said, from 1988, like we had a conservative a conservative majority with a liberal minority and then it went to a liberal majority with a block a liberal reform liberal alliance liberal conservative conservative liberal conservative liberal conservative ndp so there has been a few change elections and that's actually something that i've noticed i find so interesting actually about federal politics is that even though the voter turnout didn't change it would change uh, who was actually the governing majority party. Yeah, when I say a change election, I don't necessarily just mean a, a change in government, but it is an election that is largely driven by some sort of animus to make a fundamental change in the direction that the country is heading. Mm -hmm. And when you look at kind of towards the, I'll say the last three quarters of Harper's last term, you were seeing, you know, members of his inner circle facing um, criminal charges. You were seeing the right. Mike Duffy affair happening, that type of thing, um, moves to disenfranchise Canadian voters. And so when things like that happen, it gives a big incentive and motivation to people to turn out. And I think that you're going to see that in this election just because there's so much division and animosity, particularly with the role that social media is playing in recent elections and the potential for foreign interference, there's a lot of motivation for people to show up. And I think you're going to see a fairly significant turnout in this next election. Nice. That would be nice. Since we're on the topic, what do you think that the ballot box questions are? And coming from Alberta, we 
we have this bubble around us that really takes some effort to get out of and see what other people are thinking. And what do you what do you think is going on more? And I mean, we do have some polls. We've got a recent poll um, from the end of May that shows the conservatives in the lead with the liberals behind uh, by about six percent. Uh, the NDP is at 15% and the Greens are at 9 which is a big boost for the Greens. Yep, it is. Uh, the Conservatives are going to want the ballot box question to be, can you trust Justin Trudeau, given his track record and some of the whiffs of scandal that are surrounding him? That'll be kind of the first question that they're going to try and raise. The second question that they are going to try and raise is affordability for families and the impact that the carbon tax is going to have on day-to-day life for families. Um, So you'll see a bit of a lift of what the ballot box question was in Alberta and in Saskatchewan and in Ontario. Uh, And what the Conservatives are going to try and do is they're going to paint themselves as the family-friendly option that will make sure that you can afford to pay your bills. I think what the Liberals are hoping the ballot box question will be is what type of society do we want to live in? And are we open and tolerant or are we going to become um, closed off and bigoted? Are we going to allow the kind of alt-right elements to become entrenched in our society and are we going to be closed to immigrants and i think the other question that they hope this election will be about will be about the environment and the climate crisis and whether or not there is a climate crisis and what do we do to try and stave that off so for those two i think those are definitely the two questions that they would like to see voters deciding on. For the NDP, it's a little bit murkier. um, (laughs) And uh, we'll get into this a little bit later, but I I think that they've got fairly weak leadership. But it seems that they're going to try and campaign from a much further left position than they did or would have under Thomas Mulcair or Jack Layton. And you're seeing a little bit of Singh talking about, you know, no pipeline, um, talking about uh, a new green deal for Canada. Um, So lifting some of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's kind of platform. And and so definitely a more uh, left-wing socialist kind of platform. I don't think that that's really going to resonate in Canada, given the tone and outcomes of the most recent provincial elections. Um, Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that that's the direction that Singh wants to take it. Yeah, I think I would agree with that, uh, most especially around the murkiness, because as I think there was a lot of, what do I want to call it? There was a lot of optimism when Singh was running for the NDP leadership. Like, I, I remember seeing some of the articles written about him, and they were they were impressive. I mean, he... He seemed like this forward-thinking millennial kind of representative. Yet since he has been leader, I have not seen uh, the star and the stellar show that we kind of saw leading up to the NDP leadership election. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that a part of the challenge for Singh is that he... It's kind of the criticism that Trudeau gets. He's a lot of style and not a lot of substance. Mm. And in Ontario, uh, in opposition, um, in the Ontario NDP, he was the deputy leader of the Ontario NDP. Uh And his profile started to raise because he was wearing these very well-tailored suits and he was well-dressed. And so he was, he was very GQ. Yeah. Well, and he actually (laughs) had an article, I think it was in GQ. So an American style magazine took notice of him and did a feature on him. Um, I'm reasonably certain that it was GQ. And so, you know, he kind of had this profile in this, I'll call it um, the sense that he was kind of sexy. Right. 
and so he kind of rode the wave of that attention that was more based on his style than it was any sort of policy substance to the leadership of the NDP. And I think the biggest mistake that he made after being elected as leader of the NDP was not trying to get into the House of Commons right away because he didn't have a platform to put his face in front of Canadians on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And the other piece that, from my perspective, I saw with him not being in the House of Commons is the caucus kind of was rudderless. And so caucus started to take positions that were different or in conflict with what the leaders were, and that created some conflict. And then there wasn't really a strong sense of cohesion or discipline, I guess, within the caucus as well. And so you had some experienced MPs who kind of went wayward. And the majority of the NDP caucus is not running for re-election. And Mm. I think that him not having been present basically during the first year of his leadership has really set back the NDP in a way that they're not going to be able to recover from. Mm-hmm. I kind of, yeah, I like that. Uh, I like that view because, because something changed right between the campaign and, and today, like it's, there's definitely not the same feel of, of excitement around uh, Jagmeet Singh. No. And now, what about what about Elizabeth May? Is it and the Green Party? Like, is it a little bit of a shock because now they have two members of Parliament? Yep, they do. And like, all of a sudden, there seems to be a little bit of a fire around and like around the Green Party, right when Elizabeth May just got married. Rumor has it, no, sorry, not rumor has it, but. Uh, she said that she approached Jody Wilson-Raybould about becoming leader. So it seems to me like she's kind of ready to possibly hang up her uh, her dancing shoes. Yeah, she's been around for quite some time and has soldiered on fairly diligently as the only Green MP. This is... This is a by-election that was just recently held that elected their second MP. She's mid-60s to late-60s, and I think that, you know, she's worked really hard to build the profile of the Green Party in Canada. And she's been voted numerous times to be one of the top legislators in the House of Commons. So she's obviously commanded the respect of her peers But I think that, you know, she saw an opportunity when Wilson Raybould and Philpott stepped down to maybe bring some fresh blood into the party leadership, give her an out to make her exit from politics and still ensure that the Green Party was sustainable. But uh, the challenge there is that there isn't a lot of infrastructure and support and in a lot of ways for Wilson Raybould and Philpot, there isn't a great deal of benefit to them necessarily running for the green party or leading the green party. Mm-hmm. I think that the green party probably needs the two of them more than they need the green party. Right. Um, that being said, I don't think either of their electoral prospects are particularly rosy but uh well well wait before we get into that maybe a little bit of backstory on that because Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpot gave their announcements on May 27th that they were both going to uh be running as independents because both of them were they both expelled from the Liberal Party yes they were both expelled at the same time they were both expelled at Within the same days, time. Within days, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it was the same day. So, it was. Uh, yeah, um, both of them had stepped down from cabinet, but were still sitting as caucus members. And then, kind of culminating from all the 
media commentary that they were providing and the constant swipes that they were taking at the leadership of the party, the caucus did make the decision to get rid of them. So, mm-hmm. and yeah. and they really did have to, but we waited, you know, we waited over the weekend uh, last week and on Monday, they both made their announcement. Do you think it was a missed opportunity? Because that's, that's how, that's how I felt with it. I, I felt that they missed an opportunity. Now, granted, like I said, we're five months away from a federal election. I don't know what kind of an opportunity that really presented them, but I feel like they could have done something more. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's only been a handful of independents that have been elected in the history of the parliament. It's not completely unprecedented but there isn't a lot mm-hmm. and I think the calculation that they're making is that they are kind of household names to engaged Canadians mm-hmm. and the comments that I heard from Jody Wilson-Raybould specifically were that while she had a lot in common with the Green Party she didn't want to be holden be beholden to party leadership and having to represent a party's policies or stances. She wanted to do what she felt was in her best interest or the best interest of her constituents. Um, And I I think that particularly in the case of uh, Wilson-Raybould, what she's most interested in is what's best for Jody and not even what's best (laughs) for her constituents. Maybe sometimes that aligns, but she she definitely seems to have a bit of a God complex, in my view. And, you know, initially I was quite, quite complimentary towards her standing up against Trudeau. And I still think that she did the right thing in leaving cabinet and holding him accountable for the pressure that was applied. But mm-hmm. I think she's overplayed her hand and that she doesn't have as strong a hand as she seems to think she does. So I think that um, she's going to have a tough time getting reelected. But she does think that she, she's got a stronger case to be able to run as an independent and truly be independent and do what she thinks is best. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm still, I'm still undecided about all of that. In a way, I almost feel, and maybe because the announcement that they were going to run as independents was fairly anticlimactic from from what had been happening prior to that, right? There was the yeah. SNC-Lavalin scandal. There was uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould saying, you know, I'm I'm standing up for what's right. Uh, there were all of those things that that were going on that in a way it almost feels, it almost feels like with the announcement that they were going to run as independents that they peaked too soon. Yep, I would agree with that. And, uh, you know, just... Again, generally speaking, as an independent, you don't have the same resources. You're not going to have the same marketing clout. Um, definitely, they just because of the way they've left government and cabinet and the caucus, there's definitely a storyline there that I think media is going to be interested in. But it'll be interesting to see whether or not they're able to leverage that into enough coverage to be able to establish themselves as credible options. Now, the one thing that I think potentially could benefit or help them is that it's very uncommon for a prime minister to serve one term. Um, Usually you do get a couple of cracks at it and largely the position that the Liberals find themselves in is because of the whole controversy around Jody Wilson-Raybould and the handling of SNC-Lavalin. And it's really tarnished, I would say more so the Trudeau brand than Mm -hmm. the, the Liberal brand. So there's potential that if the Liberals do run a really strong campaign, 
that they're still able to get into that territory where they may find themselves forming a minority government or perhaps the Conservatives are forming a minority government. Um, but I think it's going to be really challenging for the Liberals to form a majority. And so if they do find themselves in a position where they do get re-elected and the Liberals have a minority government, then they've got some pretty strong leverage to be able to force through some policy that they would like to see advocated for. Okay. And that, and that makes sense. That makes sense to me. As we do move towards the campaigns, uh, which, like I was, I, I had said this in, an, in our preamble, so to speak, that what we, like, have we been seeing, I don't feel like we've been seeing a constant campaign like we saw in Alberta over the last couple of years. And, and, and granted, it's a little bit different because we had leadership races, we had parties merging, we had parties, you know, uh, imploding. All of these things were happening in Alberta that it made it seem like it was very constant. And I don't feel like that happened federally, but I'm not positive. No, I, I would be inclined to agree with that. And I think if you look at the Alberta landscape over the course of the 2015 to 2019 election, the Alberta Party had a leadership race. The Alberta Liberals had a leadership race. The United Conservative Party, for all intents and purposes, had two separate leadership races, mm -hmm. um, as well as the unity referendum. So, I mean, really, if you want to look at within the formation of the UCP, there was four big campaigns that occurred. Right. So the entire Alberta political spectrum looked very different from 2015 to 2019 and yeah. you're right it was essentially non-stop campaigning and you and I were both involved <laughs> in leadership races and so much of that <laughs> yeah and so it just felt like non-stop politics and as somebody who loves politics I was politicked out <laughs> right yeah there were there were there are times now I I never took a break yeah. like I I really Yet I would say that I'm not doing this today, but I would always kind of get sucked back in. And yeah. I'm actually at the point right now where I do put the phone away and I don't look at Twitter for a whole day, which actually makes me feel really out of touch sometimes. But I, I have to do that because four years of 24-7 of uh, politics is rough. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely is. And... I know you were working for a good portion of your time involved in politics. I had a full-time job. And then when I was the vice president of communications for the party and also during the course of the leadership election, mm -hmm. where I was on the leadership election committee, I was putting between 40 and 60 hours of volunteer time in on top of <laughs> yeah. a 40-hour full-time job. So, um, yeah, it was, it was quite draining and um, very, very much burnt out by the time it was all over and done with. Mm -hmm. and, it, yeah. and it really was it was it was just uh full time but we we haven't we haven't really seen it kick up uh entirely but at the same time andrew Shear, who has really been under fire for uh a number of months i'm going to say i i can't i can't give an exact timeline but for a number of months people have been pressuring Andrew Scheer to stand up to the alt-right. So there was that town hall where one of the participants stood up and was talking about Pizzagate. And Andrew Scheer, instead of, instead of correcting the gentleman, instead of saying, by the way, that was uh, a complete myth that never happened, he just responded to the rest of the question. And so... These are events that have happened that have caused media and and interested individuals to call Andrew Shear out and say, you need to do something about the alt-right interest in the Conservative Party. And he did that. On May the 28th, Tuesday, May the 28th, he finally gave a speech that actually addressed some of that alt-right sentiment, some of... Uh, I I was impressed. Yeah, I, I thought I thought it was a really strong speech. The only piece that concerned me a little bit was there was still the the caveat about we're all God's children and mm -hmm. and yeah. the the religious bone that was thrown there. But 
I'm comfortable with that. I'm fine with it. Um, you know, we're we're going to do a podcast about language. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> um, so you, Shears Communications Director is Brock Harrison, who's Albert an Albertan, and was mm-hmm. Danielle Smith's uh, communications person when the Wild Rose kind of rose to prominence. And he's very talented. He's a very very sharp fellow. Uh, you know obviously as a communications professional has the right words and and knows what buttons to hit to get a response and i thought it was a really good speech mm-hmm. the problem is that the rhetoric doesn't always match the actions and so the challenge for sheer is going to be can he maintain this positive conservative message and demonstrate through his actions that the words have weight meaning? and meaning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, the other thing that I'll say is in today's political climate, I'm not so sure that it matters because people are looking for confirmation of their biases. And the people who aren't going to vote for Sheer aren't going to vote for Sheer. It wouldn't matter if he brought in a million immigrants and he, you know, converted to Islam at the end of the day, if they're anti-conservative, they're anti-conservative and they'd have a reason to not support them and vice versa. So it's a very small percentage of voters that are going to be influenced by those speeches and those positions. And I don't think it really matters. But that's the small number of voters which is why I brought that number up at the beginning of the cast, because from 1988 to 2011, the the average didn't sway that much. That 13,746,568 voters, uh, the lowest was 12,997,185. The highest during that time was 14,908,703. These these numbers don't shift all that much like nope. an, until 2015 yeah so it seems to me and this is something that I was actually kind of interested in back in 2015 as well is I was looking at the switch to the conservative and the liberal governments and there's not really a great shift in voter turnout like these are not necessarily new people that are showing up these are these are more swing voters like yep. there, there are just more people who are willing to move between the liberal conservative brand, which also kind of tells me that the liberal and conservative brand are not that different. <laughs> no, they're two sides of the same coin. And <laughs> yeah, really, they're both fairly neoliberal in terms of their policy. Um, I don't think, to be honest, that the campaigns and the rhetoric leading up to them make that big of a difference. Oh, come on. Harper's were awful. But here's where the caveat is, is that it's kind of like policy. Really good policy isn't going to win you an election, but really awful policy will lose you an election. And I think for the most part, campaigns are very much the same way. If there's a sentiment and... uh, a perception or feeling amongst the electorate that it's time for a change, that change is going to happen. And if you have a really bad campaign, like if the Trudeau government or uh, sorry, the Trudeau liberals, because it's not the government, but the Trudeau liberals have a very weak campaign, that's going to push sheer further. But if they have a very strong campaign, I'm not so sure that they can still come back and, form a majority government um it it's going to be because sheer craps the bed and really has a weak campaign and makes mistakes that's going to help the liberals and that's a large part of why the liberals went from third to first in the last election it wasn't because they ran a phenomenal campaign it was because the expectations were so low and because (laughs) the conservative party really screwed screwed the pooch in that campaign they started talking about you know racism they started talking about the niqab ban they started talking about barbaric cultural practices mm-hmm. and for me the majority of the time there are exceptions but the majority of the time in a campaign when one party starts to go 
in that direction and I'll call it the kind of dog whistle politics. <laughs> that to me is always a sign that they're in trouble. And you saw the NDP do it in oh, the Alberta yeah. election. And for all the criticism of the UCP playing dog whistle politics, it was actually the NDP that really went negative and were kind of, by all admissions, smearing the conservatives with their own words. Worst but, campaign ever. <laughs> yeah, well, there's been worse. I think that when they're looking for that change, that they are, that people are looking for something to be hopeful for. Yep. Rachel Nolly was that hopeful individual back uh, in 2015. She did not come across the same way in 2019. No, she came across as desperate and like she was playing from playing from a position of weakness. And I think yeah. that mm. the Trudeau liberals are in, very much in that kind of position where they're playing defense and the defense that they're playing is trying to paint Andrew Scheer as a racist, um, right. saying that the conservative party has a problem with bigots and with racism and intolerance. If you're a small C conservative who feels an affinity and a natural inclination to vote conservative, but you're unhappy with the leadership, but you're being called a racist and a bigot, you're less likely to park your vote with the liberals for an election. You'll say- For calling you, know, you that. Yep, yeah, for calling yeah. you that, right? So it's like, well, if you think that I'm a racist and a bigot, perhaps I shouldn't be voting for you then, right? And so I'll hold my nose and I'll vote for Shearer for whoever, is in that position and so there's already uh an air of desperation and and just ugliness that's coming out of the liberal campaign and they're calling the conservatives climate deniers and racists and bigots and and i think it's going to backfire on them and i i would be very surprised if andrew Scheer wasn't our next prime minister Mm. Okay. Well, that seems like a fantastic segue into the next portion. What are the pros and cons of voting in the uh, Conservative Party of Canada as our next government? For me, the pros of voting them in are that with the division that's occurring in politics right now and kind of the acrimony and particularly because just the Trudeau name, not because of policy or because of anything specific that, that he's done other than being a Trudeau, the rhetoric has just become so inflamed. And I think if he wins another term that that's going to become exponentially larger. So for me, I think in terms of national unity and in terms of that heated political rhetoric toning down, a sheer win is actually probably really good because as much as I dislike Sheer as a leader, um, I don't hate Sheer. And I think he's I think he's weak. I think he's ineffective, but I don't think he's sinister. And so for me, if we <laughs> if we get okay. Trudeau, but you're gonna get I, a more sinister leader. Really? You you're I, putting Trudeau as more sinister than No, 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 no. Or no. Uh, I'm I'm meaning the successor to Sheer will be a more extreme conservative version. Ah. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, that uh okay, no, I would I would fully agree with that. Um I think it's interesting to see sheer moving you know from the from the it was a good move on his part that speech you know like you said it was it was where uh, the the language was correct it mostly hit the right notes yes obviously he still needs to keep the base of of people who all believe they're God's children happy. Uh, but I mean, Sheer didn't actually end up having a great week. So that was, he gave that speech on Tuesday. Yep. But 
then his MP from St. Albert, St. Albert, uh, Edmonton, St. Albert, Edmonton, St. Albert, uh, Mr. Cooper, who quoted the manifesto from the New Zealand, uh, the New Zealand terror attack. Like that happened the day after that was where it started to make things look like, is Sheer just saying words again? Or is he, does he have some actions behind him? And here's where Sheer can kind of walk a fine line. Of course, the liberals are going to call for, and not just the liberals, but opponents of the conservatives, whether they be NDP, Green, or liberal, are going to call for Michael Cooper to be removed from that committee. It's something he's really passionate about. Uh, he has attempted to sponsor a couple of private or a private member's bill um, related to justice and the death of Constable Wynn, um, who was ambushed in a casino while he was trying to... Uh, trying to uh, apprehend a criminal and uh, right. killed in St. Albert. some speakers in to discuss online hate. That's accurate. And so the fact that three more right-leaning individuals were invited doesn't exactly make one think that they were invited by the liberals or by the NDP, or by the Green Party. Contributor. And it didn't seem to reflect well upon the Conservative Party since Andrew Scheer made that speech. Since Andrew Scheer said, if these are your views, you're not welcome. So Like, I, I, that's possible, right? Here's what I think the player, the strategy is. You want your leader, and Jason Kenney did this very effectively, um, to stay out of the mud. You want the leader to be positive and hopeful and to, you know, be full of sunny ways. <laughs> and <laughs> what you do is you send your surrogates to be the pigs in the mud. And right. so it's a calculation to... 
establish a big tent party that encompasses the further right elements of the conservative And so, <laughs> it hurts, but okay, yeah. keep going. <laughs> yeah, and so I mean, ultimately, it's just a numbers game. At the end of the day, in order for the conservatives to be able to form government, they need to maintain those kind of more fundamentalist, extreme right wing voices that may be more naturally attracted to a Maxim Bernier as oh. a as a leader. And you know, and he really wasn't even on the list, but. I mean, we were going to talk pros and cons of electing Andrew Scheer. I think we've actually done a fairly decent job of that is really in just to say that with the with the CPC, much like the UCP in Alberta, actually, is that it's such a mixed bag of nuts that you really <laughs> didn't know what you were going to get. Yep. And I think that's and that's kind of what the CPC is doing as well, is that, hey, I could be extreme right wing, but I feel at home in the CPC. And, you know, his leadership campaign for the CPC, he actually came across as fairly progressive and supportive of, like, LGBT people. And, you but know, libertarians can do that because libertarians they can. Yeah. Yeah. But since he's lost that <laughs> and started his own party, he started to pander now and be more transphobic and more anti-immigrant. And... A moderate center-right leader, he belongs in the Conservative Party. He's right. not going to peel off enough votes from the moderates in the Conservative Party to be able to form government. But if he's able to build a base from the extreme right faction and peel those votes off that might be less committed, then he has an opportunity to do something like, say, hold the balance of power in a minority government situation. So it's really, at the end of the day, it's about numbers and where the votes are. And whether those are sincerely held convictions he has, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But this is one of the challenges of politics, electoral politics in a first-past-the-post system, is... They're looking at the numbers and where they can potentially garner votes and get themselves enough support to be in a position where they've got some influence. And it's also, it's not just a numbers game when the vote comes around, but it's also a numbers game as far as donations go. Yep. And that is something that I've heard over and over and over again, that a party that starts in the center who could really garner the most votes, but... Their problem is that they don't have the the absolute dedication that is offered from one of the fringe. So either the left or the right, they they build the party from the left or the right, and they campaign closer to the center so that they can actually get those moderate votes. But in order to get volunteers, in order to get organizers, in order to get money, you need to pander to those groups. Yep. Yeah, because they're the ones who are motivated. They're kind of, uh, I'll call them issues-based voters that have an incentive to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. And, yeah. and you just don't see that from moderates. They don't get fired up about politics. And this kind of comes back to your point about the voting, like the raw vote numbers not changing. I'll, I'll challenge you a little bit in that... The average stayed fairly consistent in terms of the number of voters from, I think you said, the early 80s up until... No, 20, late 80s. Late 80s up to... Yeah, 1988 up till 2015. What was the growth of the population in Canada during that time? 
Okay, so that was fun as well because <laughs> you know you you saw uh, the lowest voter turnout. at 58%, but the numbers didn't change, right? Yeah, so, so that so in was terms of raw of votes, the population. Yeah, in terms of raw votes, it stayed within a reasonable amount the same. Right. But the population was growing. And so what you're seeing is more people have become disengaged in terms of raw numbers and just aren't turning out. And so right. I, I think that that kind of reinforces the point that it's more the extremes that are motivated to come out and to vote and to be a part of political parties and to advocate for policy and donate. And that's what's led us to the point where we've got this polarization and where the rhetoric is so heated that in the advent of social media has pushed moderates out and they become disengaged and just don't have the energy to put up with the the constant animosity and heated rhetoric. Yeah, and and I mean that was one that was something that I think that I found the most difficult was that before I was involved in politics, I mean I and I I I love to say that I wasn't paying attention, but when I really look back on, you know, life, <clears throat> I like, I remember Jack Layton. I remember mm-hmm. what he was doing. I remember the effect that his words, that his speeches kind of had on on me personally. Yeah. And and that was an actual effect. Um, but so, so even for someone who would have proclaimed at the time that I had absolutely no interest in politics and I wanted nothing to do with politics... I knew who Jack Layton was. He affected me. Yep. Right? Well, like and that... he, Jack Layton, there's periodically in any democracy, in my view, leaders that have charisma and just a, a general appeal. And you're a self-described conservative, but Jack Layton, because of that charisma and relatability, appealed to you. And he he did for sure to me, too. Um, And when you looked at the, I'll call it absence of strong leadership in the Liberal Party at the time, Jack Layton, for somebody who potentially has some progressive leanings, was a more appealing option because of that charisma. And but they also and now I'm not as I'm not as uh, what I call it. Um, I, I don't have the connection to federal politics that I do to provincial politics. Yeah. And I, so I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent if this is the same for everyone, but I don't really have a major horse in the race federally. No. So, I mean, uh, I think on behalf in memory of Jack Layton, I may have voted for NDP again in 2015. Mulcair was not someone that I was really, he didn't move me under any circumstances. But also because of what was going on federally, we saw the NDP taking more of a centrist stance, the liberals outlefting the NDP and Harper. Yeah. Um, I mean, economically Harper's plan was the best for my family at the time. Uh, the NDP's plan seemed the most reasonable to me at the time. Like I, and again, it could be because I'm kind of new to politics in the grand scheme of things, I haven't been involved since I was 12. So. Open. Pragmatic. But also, I'm open to experimentation federally. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. I'm not, but I'm not tied to anyone, right? Like, I don't, so, I don't. So that makes you polysexual, P-O-L-I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Polysexual with an eye. I yeah. love it. Hey, I have to do something with that. <laughs> All That's right. But funny. back to where we were. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't think any of these leaders are particularly dynamic. And I, I think with weak policy and strong charisma, you can appeal more broadly than you will with strong policy and no charisma. And you only have to look at Stefan Dion or Michael Ignatieff to see that in terms of policy looks very similar to what Justin Trudeau's did, mm-hmm. but they just lack that kind of je ne sais quoi that right. Justin Trudeau <laughs> appeared to have when he first started. But now we've mostly realized that he's... Uh, My vote is up for grabs. Um, I'm not a fan of Andrew Scheer. Nope. I'm not a fan of of a number of... I mean, I'm sorry, but every time Kenny opens his mouth to say, you know, vote CPC, that honestly does not do a thing for me. Yeah. Um, But at the same time... I do not wish that on the country. Nope. No, and I, I think don't. I, I think that is one in, I think that's one thing that actually might push me to give my vote to the Conservative Party, not because I support them. Yeah, we ended up with Kenny. I mean, yep. I think we're all going to pay. Yeah, well, as as repugnant as I find <laughs> a lot of Kenny's stances, there's actually worse out there. And I think about people like Kelly Leach. I think about people like Brad Trost. I think about the new version of Maxim Bernier and all of those people. If you put a gun to my head, I'm going to pick... Kenny, 100% of the time over them. I...
Oh, politics and, uh, is so tough. Robert. Yeah, it is. And Jagmeet Singh. <laughs> right. Okay. Does he have a chance? <laughs> no, he doesn't have a chance. No, he, he doesn't, doesn't have a chance because at one point he was the guy to watch. He was the up-and-coming person who was going to make a difference. And when he was elected, he stuttered and he didn't answer questions and people lost interest. And more than that, he was invisible for a long period of time. When he was visible, he was incoherent. He took conflicting stances between himself and his caucus and traditional NDP kind of positions. And he just did not articulate his vision or who he was very well. And I still don't think he's done that. I would project in the next 10 years that you'll see the Green Party actually surpass the NDP in oh, terms cool. of total support. Well, I mean, as long as the NDP wants to keep bringing in essentially green policy, yeah, uh, they're not doing themselves any favors. No, they're not. And um, Naomi Klein needs to just join the Green Party already and go do that. I think she's probably too extreme for the Green Party, to be honest. <laughs> so... But that's the problem. I think the NDP, and I, I think this is the case in Alberta as well, the NDP is undergoing a bit of an identity crisis. And mm -hmm. the one person who, to me, kind of stands out as a potential, if she were to go and run federally and to become the leader of the federal NDP, I think that they appeal very broadly across the rest of the country. she does stand a chance at being able to form a government. And when you look at the favorables for her when she was premier, they were horrendous in Alberta, but she was very well very respected, a very, very popular, one of the most popular premiers outside of her province in the rest of That's Canada. True. If she managed to bring the current NDP, which really needs to, to move to the center, 100 percent uh mulcair may not have been the person to do it but he was doing the right thing he was yep. moving the ndp where it needed to go he just he just wasn't the person to take it there or it just wasn't his time i mean you know yep. who knows well but, i think it's a bit of both and the problem that mulcair faced was he alienated his base in quebec which is right. largely secular being truly secular okay. and Quebec's version of secularism very often comes across as being Islamophobic. Mulcair took a position and I think it was a principled position and I don't like the guy. He took a principled position that we're not going to play into this conservative position about the niqabs and banning them and them being a threat to our society. And he did that to the detriment of his electoral prospects. And it alienated a lot of people and pushed them towards the conservatives in Quebec. Okay. And so you had a lot of I, people I, going from the NDP to the conservatives. Oh, you know, federal politics, I, I find it interesting because the dynamics are so different, right? Yeah. In Alberta, you can pretty much say, sure, we have this rural-urban thing that's how we get along yeah. <laughs> but but we have this rural urban thing but in federal politics i mean you're talking about a major difference between and high population areas as a leader unless they manage to keep it away from things like religion and race and everything else and that really would take a special leader and yeah, I still agree. Rachel Notley is my number one choice for NDP leader. Yeah. No offense, I, Jagmeet Singh. <laughs> no, I think that uh, Jagmeet will be out after this election. And then the NDP is really going to need to do some soul searching in terms of what its core identity is. And mm -hmm. if Rachel Notley is a part of that, I think that sh she potentially 
pulls away a lot of progressive voters from the liberals who have parked their votes there and um, could send the send the liberals into the wilderness again for another period of time. Oh, Robbie, this just, you know, as, as much as taking some of those breaks and shutting off politics, the idea of Rachel Notley running federally as NDP leader seriously makes me want to, you know, knock some doors. Well, I, I <laughs> go back to, we did a session with pollster Janet Brown, and she said in the UCP focus groups, one of the things that they heard multiple times was Rachel Notley would be an incredible cabinet minister in a Jason Kenney government. <laughs> and I think that we, like yeah. that's just stuck with me, and it's the most succinct way of describing Rachel Notley. I think Rachel's the leader, but I don't think she was capable of developing the talent around her in such a short period of time but Mm -hmm. was very very competent and capable as premier and would would make a great leader federally as well oh for sure okay well i think i think we're going to have to wrap it up there because people are mowing their lawns and that's probably coming through (laughs) yeah let's chat soon okay bye robbie bye deirdre thanks for joining us for this episode this has been the Political R&D Podcast with Robbie Krieger-Smith and Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. Where can people find you, Deirdre? They can find me on Twitter at Mitchell underscore AB. And you can find me online at RKS Alberta. The Political R&D Podcast is available wherever you get your podcast, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Political R&D. Mm-hmm.